Well, amen. Why don't we uh, why don't we get started in prayer? We're going to be in Joshua 3 tonight. Yeah. And uh, are to be a good study. Yes. See, Caleb, why don't you pray for us? Dear God, thank you so much for tonight, God. Thank you for your mercies that are unending, God. We pray that we can we can learn more this morning tonight, God. And that your word will be planted deep within us, God. And that it's not only uh, knowledge, God, but it's something that we're going to be able to apply to our lives, God. Thank you so much for tonight, God. Yeah. Uh, we will start by reading chapter 3. Uh, so Jim, why don't, why don't you read chapter 3 to us? Everybody find your way there. Yeah. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped for crossing over. After three days, the officers went through the camp, giving orders to the people. Where you, where, when, you, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, who are Levites, carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 3,000 yards between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the edge of the Jordan's water, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage, all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from the upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap at a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarephan. While the water was flowing down the sea of, I'm sorry, while the water flowing down to the sea of Araba, the salt sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, when all the Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. What an incredible chapter. Uh, when we began this ministry, uh, our very first newsletter, we used this chapter because the Lord spoke to us out of it and said that, our faith needed to rise to meet the floodwaters of challenge. 
that we would stand in the middle of the Jordan and we would pull out of it stones that we would stack up for the generations to come that would tell you how to let your faith rise to meet that challenge. Uh, that's been true. It, it's definitely been true. Uh, as many nights as I had to teach on Joshua 3, I could literally teach on a different facet of it every single evening for a year easily. Uh, I love the chapter. It's very difficult in teaching a chapter like Joshua 3 to know what to teach you. And we're going to go out on a limb and show you some things tonight that I didn't know when I woke up this morning. And uh, I love when the King of Kings reveals things. Uh, for your notes tonight, uh, obviously this is about crossing. We're going to start in an unusual way. Uh, maybe, let's see. Maybe we'll start in verse 1. Yeah, that would be fair. Um, there is one more thing that I'm looking for. It just slipped my mind. I mean, I, it says that they crossed immediately opposite Jericho. Uh, 16. So, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity, vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. At the top of your notes, you probably want to write crossing opposite Jericho. Let me show you uh, a map real quick. Put this on the screen for us, Matthew. And uh, I want to show you a couple of issues that come up. When we're looking at this, you can see where Shittim is on your screen. Screen right at about 3 o'clock with a blue box around it. They're approaching from the east side and they have to cross the Jordan from east to west, facing immediately opposite Jericho. So somebody turn to John, who's going to be somebody? Frank, why don't you take this one? And in John, in the first chapter, find a good place to pick up. There are some things happening on the bank of the Jordan. So why don't you pick up in verse 19, and you're going to read all the way down through 28. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of, the, of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This has uh, got to be a pretty popular verse, right? You find it in the very first chapter of John. Can you see the screen? Walk with me through 12, how many? 12. 12 references to Bethany that occur in the Newer Testament. Beginning in Matthew 21, 17. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. From context, Matthew 21 is the triumphal entry to Jerusalem. From that, would you deduce that Bethany and Jerusalem are next to each other? Probably so. In Matthew 26, while Jesus was staying in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar. You look at the context around Matthew 26 and you will find that Jesus has just walked from Bethany. This is in the last week of his life where he, from the 10th of Nisan to the 14th of Nisan, was in Jerusalem every day. By the way, you can do the same thing in Mark 11.1. How many of you have been to Israel? In Israel, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Standing at the Mount of Olives, did anybody see the Jordan River? No. You didn't, did you? So Matthew 11, 1, 11, 11, and Matthew eleven twelve are all next to Jerusalem. In Mark 14, 3, while he was in Bethany reclining at a table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Again, there's only 16 chapters in Mark. We are in the last few days of Jesus' life when this occurs. And this Bethany is next to Jerusalem. Incidentally, you can do the same thing in Luke 19, 29. You can do it in Luke 24, 50. When you get to John 11, we probably find the most famous event that happened at Bethany. You see, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Right here, this is a Sabbath day's walk from Jerusalem. Uh, in John 12, 1, the last reference. Six days before Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived. So we have a Bethany where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live, a Bethany that is right next to Jerusalem, a Bethany that means something to the effect of house of figs. And then we have another setting. In John 1.28, the 12th mention, if these are the other 11, we find out that John the Baptist is baptizing somewhere. Where is he baptizing? Frank, read 1.28 again. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. How do you baptize at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, if you're standing in Jerusalem, and the Jordan River doesn't run through it? 
except the passages say that he was baptizing in the Jordan. So I'm going to show you in all four Gospels that Jesus was baptized by John. I'm going to show you in all four Gospels that the site is the same. I'm going to show you in each instance the setting is exactly the same. But before I do that, let me show you something else. Are y'all interested yet? When we look at this map, where I put a cross is immediately opposite Jericho. The passage in Joshua 3 says they broke camp at Shittim and they crossed the Jordan immediately opposite Jericho. Can you see Bethany in the lower left-hand corner of the map? There's a mountain range between them. This is not Bethany anywhere near the Jordan. So there must be another city. There must be something else. Are you ready? In the early manuscripts called the Textus Receptus, and also in more modern manuscripts, generally referred to by scholars as the NA27, we have a discrepancy, a fairly large one. In the NA27, it says these things uh, in Bethany were done beyond the Jordan. And because of that, it shows up in our NIV that way. The Textus Receptus is... Uh, another body of work, a collection of manuscripts from which the King James and many other ESV were drawn. It says these things in Bethabara were done beyond the Jordan. Which is it? Is it Bethany or is it Bethabara? And what do you do when you're facing the oldest manuscripts you have and there's a contradiction? By the way, how many of you in here speak more than one language? Have you ever noticed that you can look on a map in a country and something as simple as the name of the other countries in the world are different depending on where you're standing? I mean, anybody surprised that you find out we fought a war with Germany and they referred to their own country as Deutschland? You know? Do do you find it awkward when, um, when you're standing in a city and you're like, hey man, I, I couldn't wait to get here. And find out nobody in that city has the same name for the city as you have for the city. Yeah. When you're translating things, city names uh, vary. I mean, depending on, on how you present that subject. Do you keep the local name? Do you try to adapt it to your language? What do you do? Well... <laughs> I'm not much on the church fathers. Y'all know that. I, I've never liked the Greek fathers. Uh, but I found myself studying this guy today, Origen. Now, there are many interesting things about Origen, but notice the time period that this uh, strangely effeminate man lived. He's born in 185 A.D. in Alexandria, Egypt. He dies in 254 in Lebanon. You ever draw a line from Egypt to Lebanon? Where do you have to go through? Israel. You've got to go through Israel. He spent much of his life studying the Word and spending time in Israel. I have a commentary that he wrote. He wrote it in about the year 200. That's an interesting thing, huh? Mm-hmm. I want to read that to you. You ready? It says... Um, 
The name of the place where John baptized is not Bethany, as in most copies. Say most copies. Most copies. But Bethabara. Proof of this. Similarly, Gergesus should be read as Gerasa in the story of the swine. Attention is to be paid to the proper names in Scripture, which are often written inaccurately and are of importance for interpretation. Now he's quoting the text. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. We are aware of reading of the reading which is found in, say it with me, almost, almost all, all copies. copies. <laughs> it's interesting, huh? These things were done in Bethany. This appears, moreover, to have been the reading at an earlier time, and in Heraclion we read Bethany. We are convinced, however, that we should not read Bethany, but Bethabara. We have visited the places, say visited, visited. visited the places to inquire as to the footsteps of Jesus and his disciples, and of the prophets. Now Bethany, as the evangelist tells us, was the town of Lazarus, and of Mary, and of Martha. It is 15 stadia from Jerusalem, opposite the river Jordan, and is about 180 stadia distance from it. Nor is there any other place of the same name in the neighborhood of the Jordan. But they say that Bethabara is pointed out on the banks of the Jordan, and that John is said to have baptized there. Now this, this provided a real quandary for me. I like Hebrew things. Greek fathers don't interest me at all. Particularly, this particularly strange Greek father uh, emasculated himself. I mean, he literally... Yeah, let that sink in for a minute. To avoid sexual immorality, he thought it would be a good idea to follow Paul's advice and just cut the whole thing off. Now the question is, does that make him wrong? Most copies in his day, he said, said Bethany. And yet when he went there, the local people called it something else. They said, that's Bethabara. If most copies in his day said Bethany, that affords that some copies didn't, right? We don't really have very many of those. But what we do have is we have two competing codecs. We have a collection of our oldest that say Bethany, and we have a collection of our oldest that say Bethabara. What do you do? Well, let's start by saying probably these were not written originally in Greek to start with. I know that kicks against what people are taught in seminary. I know that's probably not what your pastors have told you if you came from another church. But Susie can speak English. I bet when she's in her prayer time, though, she speaks in other tongues, she speaks in her native tongue, and probably only speaks in English when she has to uh, because it's not her native language. Now, the Jews in the Newer Testament were very capable of speaking in Greek, but they wrote, they read Bibles that were written in Hebrew. And they prayed in Hebrew, which got me thinking about Hebrew and what this might mean. We're going to come back to that. So you might write Bethany and Bethabara. 
next to your crossing. Is that fair enough? Mm -hmm. You can leave it there for just a minute. Well, I don't always show y'all notes like this, but today I did. So, I want to show you what my thought process was. I don't particularly like the early Greek fathers. See, I write just exactly <laughs> like I talk to you. Origen emasculated himself to avoid immorality. <laughs> immorality, not uh, immortality. <laughs> yeah. It is worth noting that he also admits that almost all of the copies say these things were done in Bethany. But this leaves, at least in his testimony, a minority number of copies that did not say Bethany. Moreover, he is writing in the year 200 AD and claims to have spoken with locals in the area, and they said there was a spot called Bethabara. First, since it is indisputable that Bethany is near Jerusalem and is not on the Jordan, then we must accept that a second city existed as all scholars do. Second, if both names are attested to, we may surmise that this site in question had more than one name to distinguish it from its counterpart. Let's suppose there are two cities called Bethany. How would you know which Bethany we were talking about? Well, you would need to say Bethany on the Jordan, or you would need to say Bethany in Jerusalem, or perhaps in Hebrew, there was another way to do that. We'll come back to that. Third, there is no reason the manuscripts or origin have to be wrong. My conclusion is that Bethany by the Jordan was also referred to as Bethabara to distinguish it from the Bethany near Jerusalem. So that's our working hypothesis as we go. You ready? Y'all bored? No. <laughs> Bethabara. Bethabara means house of the four. Sorry, Chevy. Sorry, Dodge. House of the Ford in Hebrew does not mean Ford as in fix or repair daily. Or the last man's name who invented the car but cannot make diesel trucks that run. It actually means house of the crossing. As in, to ford a river. House of the crossing. Now, if you wanted to know which Bethany we were talking about, whether you're talking about Bethany in Jerusalem or Bethany on the Jordan, and the most famous event in Israel's history happened at the Jordan, where Israel's people first crossed in from east to west, you might say that's Bethany or that's Bethabara, the house or the place of the crossing. Would that make sense? Yes. Now both manuscripts are correct, and even Origen, who had flawed judgment enough to cut off his own genitals, uh, doesn't have to be wrong in the scenario. As we follow this train of thought through, what this means is, when you get back to this map, there is a Bethany in the lower left-hand corner, but where the cross is, there is Bethany or Bethabara, the place of the crossing. When you look at the place of the crossing then, Bethabara, does it make sense that they're moving from east to west, they have been camped at Chittim, and they're going to Jericho, and they cross exactly opposite Jericho, 
that where that cross is would be Bethabara? It does. Well, you got in about seven, eight minutes what took me nine hours to do. <laughs> Having said all of that, that's not what's interesting. This is where this gets really cool. What passage was Frank reading from? John. What happens in John? Let's read a few passages of Scripture. You can kill that now, Matthew. Okay. Can I hand out a few? Yes, sir. So, Andrew, you take John 1, 28 through 36. Cody, you take Matthew 3, 13 through Matthew, the fourth chapter and third verse. Curtis, you take Mark 1, 9 through 13. Daniel, you take Luke 3, 19 through 23. And then as soon as you're done with that, pick up in Luke 4, 1 through 12. Anybody ever buy fireworks? Is it incredible how much money they cost? And when you light them, how fast they go? I mean, that's, that's spectacular, isn't it? You know what else is like that? Minding the word of God for revelation. <laughs> it's all right. We're gonna, this, you're going to like this. All right. So uh, whoever had John? John 1, 28 through 36. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with the two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. It would be hard to overstate the importance of what we just read. In this one passage, standing in a very specific spot, the place where Israel first crossed over the Jordan to face Jericho, the place where John the Baptist is baptizing, we hear John the Baptist, or baptizer, or immerser if you prefer, say that the Spirit remained on Jesus, that Jesus would be the one that would baptize you with the Spirit, that He is the Lamb of God, and the Son of God. Do you think that the place he's standing on the globe is trivial? Or do you think that God chose a specific spot where a new kind of battle would ensue that was foreshadowed in Israel's very own history had occurred? See, it's in response to a revelation that men embarked to do what God says. 
John has a revelation and he goes to a spot at the Jordan and he begins proclaiming something about Jesus. My contention tonight that as we read these and you see the spot where Jesus was baptized, the spot where the prophet began baptizing, is the same spot that the Israelites crossed the Jordan and it signifies both the beginning and the end of our battle in life. Okay, this is going to be, I hope, uh, enlightening. Let's take our next passage. Matthew 3, 13, verse 4, verse 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning on him. And a voice came from heaven and said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. Now consider what you've heard. That spot where they crossed is the spot that Jesus is being baptized. And the moment that he is baptized, God speaks from the heavens. We have a, a writings quote. This is my son, a writings with whom I'm pleased. Writings, law, prophets quote. Right there in one sentence, stringing pearls. And then where does Jesus go immediately? Where was Joshua coming out of? So what desert do you think Jesus is going into? Do you see what begins to open up here? Charlie, you might say it this way. He's on the right road, but he's headed the wrong direction. We're going to draw seven parallels between Joshua and Jesus here in a minute. But for right now, I'm just trying to get you uh, thinking along those lines. Okay? Let's take our next passage. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out to the desert. And he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. How long was he in the desert? 40 days. How long was Joshua in the desert? 40 years. You think that's a coincidence? Mark makes the point that he immediately goes to the desert. Didn't get to wait around. Didn't. It's almost like when he... When he came up out of that water, it was on. <laughs> it crossed over. He was now in contention with the enemy. See, as long as Joshua hung out in the desert, Jericho and he were going to have no problems. He was on his side of the fence. They were on their side of the fence. But when he crossed the river, the fight is inevitable. When Jesus came out of the water in the very same spot, where did the Spirit lead him? Who led the Israelites while they were in the desert? Okay, let's keep going. Uh, who's got Luke? I do. Luke 3, 19 through 23. 
and Luke 4, 1 through 12. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of, of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added things. Herod added this to, to them all. He locked up John in the prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying. Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he, when he began his ministry. He was a son, so it was thought of Joseph. In all four Gospels, we have the same activity occur. What we have is the site of a baptism. We have an interaction with John the Baptist and Jesus. And then three of the four Gospels say something to the effect of immediately after the crossing, they're locked in mortal combat. Like he goes straight to the desert as led by the Spirit, and he begins to interact with the devil. Right? Am I, am I wrong there? No, no, sir. All right, let's look at seven things then. You can put these on the screen, Matt. Seven things that you might be able to glean from this. By the way, had anybody noticed this before? No. 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 I just want to make sure I wasn't boring you to death. Okay. It seems that John baptized Jesus in the spot where Joshua led Israel crossing the Jordan 1,400 years earlier. Point number one. Number two. Immediately after the baptism, Jesus went into that same desert at the very same crossing place that Joshua had come out of. In other words, crossing this river is a very important thing. Third, the length of stay in the desert for Joshua was 40 years, and for Jesus, 40 days. In the, in the same desert, they were led by God's presence. For Joshua, it was a cloud and a pillar, and for Jesus, it was simply said, the Spirit. Number four, Jesus' first temptation. What was the first temptation? Turn this stone into bread. Jesus' first temptation in the desert was answered with Deuteronomy 8.3, which Joshua experienced in that same desert when it was originally written, learning that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That's an incredible relationship. Four, Jesus' first temptation in the desert was answered with Deuteronomy... Oh, I just read that. I'm sorry. We're on five? Yeah. Five. Both Joshua and Jesus were in the same desert when they walked out Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 13. Before we go any further, let's read that. Who's going to read it? You go ahead and go to Joshua 3, 7. And uh, Nick, you go to John 17, 1. Yes, sir. Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 13. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Uh, Rob, did you just read us Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 13? Yes, sir. You sure? Mm-hmm. Give me one second. So Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 16. Forgive me. Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take your oaths in His name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and His anger will burn against you, and He will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massah. So Joshua watched the people put God to the test and saw God angered, he came to the conclusion as he listened to Moses, his spiritual father, write Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 16, that you worship God alone. Jesus is walking the very same path in the very same desert, and in in this case, he answers with Deuteronomy 6, 13, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, rather 6, 16, and look at the results. What happened to Jesus and what happened to Joshua? Who had Joshua 3, 7? I did. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Because Jesus did not fail this test, and because Joshua did not fail this test, the result was they were elevated. Joshua was elevated in all the eyes of Israel because He relied upon the Lord and the Lord only. He didn't take a shortcut, an easy thing. How how about John 17? After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Did he do it? Yes. Why did he do it? Because Jesus served him and him only. He didn't take the easy way out, and neither did Joshua. Sixth one. This was kind of fun. Both left the desert and chose 12 men immediately. (laughs) So Joshua, he chooses 12 men. The whole nation's going to see the crossing, but 12 of them, one from each tribe, gets right up close, right up in the front. They get to witness it. They're the first in their nation to follow the priest in the ark across, and then as soon as they get on the other side, They're the 12 that take stones from the middle to set up for everybody else. Doesn't that sound like the 12 apostles? Do you know when Jesus began picking his 12 apostles? Immediately after his baptism. Uh, Let's read those real quick. So, uh, Sam, you take Joshua 3.12. Patricia, you take Matthew 4.18. And Mandy, you take Matthew 10.1. Joshua 3.12 Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. So God himself said, pick these twelve men. It occurred at the crossing. They they were put into service immediately thereafter. Now get Matthew 4.18. Matthew 4.18 Matthew 4.18 Then Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. 
they were casting a net into the sea for they were fishing. Now that's Matthew 4.18. Do you know where the temptation is? It's in Matthew 4.1 through about 4.12. I mean, it's just a couple verses after the next recorded event. Could that be a mistake? No. I really don't think it is. I think the Holy Spirit intended us to see these similarities. How about Matthew 10.1? He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil they both had 12. You know, this is the first time Joshua ever chooses 12 men. Very first time. Moses had chosen 12 and Joshua was one of them. When it came time to pick uh, witnesses or spies, how many did Joshua choose? Two. Two. He did not choose 12. This is the first time in his whole life he's ever picked 12 for anything. And what are they doing? They're witnessing the crossing and then they're setting up monuments to it. That's an incredible thing. What did the apostles actually do? They witnessed life from death, or death, from, uh, life coming right out of death. They set up monuments to it. They're even called in, in uh, Peter's writings, stones that are stacked upon the living stone, rising to become a house of God. In Revelation 20 uh, and 21, they become foundations to the temple that the whole thing is built on. And what is Peter called in Matthew 16? A rock. And on this rock I'll build my church. That's an interesting facet, don't you think? You know who the very first of the apostles was that was picked? Peter. wonder who the first uh, guy Joshua picked was. I bet he was the first one to get a stone out of the river. Okay, how about the uh, seventh? This was maybe my favorite. Both left the desert to see a whole nation. Say whole nation. Whole nation. Whole nation cross into God's promises. And it would be initiated by a Passover. So Judah, read Joshua 4.1, Peyton, Joshua 5.10, and Spencer, Luke 22.15. Joshua 4.1 When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stayed tonight. Twelve men led an entire nation. How many in the nation crossed? The whole nation. Have you ever heard Romans 11.26, So all Israel will be saved? Those twelve men were the first. They're the foundation stones. But the whole nation will cross. That's good news, don't you think? Yeah, it's incredible. All of this begins to be unlocked. Why? Because we found out that there's two Bethany's, one of them called Bethbara, House of the Crossing. And once you start to see that pen fall in place, other things begin to grow all around it. I love how precepts are built upon precepts. Let me tell you something about integrated design for just a second, and then we're going to get back into this. Integrated design means that every facet of the Bible works with every other facet of the Bible. If we were in warfare, and Damien's on that side, and I'm on this side, so we've got a gulf between us, and we're trying to get messages to each other, right? And I wad up a piece of paper, and I have my whole message on that one piece of paper, and I go to throw it to him, and Andrew just gets a wild hair, leaps off of his chair, snatches it out of the air, and throws it away. 
That's 100% failure, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So what God did was He didn't put the most important things in the Bible in any one place altogether. Mm -hmm. In fact, the most important doctrines in all of the Bible, the nature of the Godhead, things like the triunity or trinity of God, something as simple as God is loving, they're not located... You, can you, anybody turn to the Godhead chapter and, and, and you show me where it's at? Can anybody show me the whole plan of God in a single paragraph? He dispersed it evenly throughout the book so that even if one part was taken from you, you would have enough pieces to put it together. That's brilliant. That's masterful. When you see a discrepancy, you know what all the scholars say about this? Okay. The ones that are pro-NIV, right? They say, well, you know, Origen was kind of a fruit loop, and uh, I agree. And the thing is, is he had, a, he had a, a, a loose grasp of the sacredness of the text. I mean, do you see how willing he is to change uh, uh, letters and say it should be this? Mm -hmm. Simply because he doesn't know there's a second Bethany somewhere? That's their feeling. And I don't disagree with them. I don't, I don't like a Rajan either. But don't be so sure, because the Textus Receptus guys are like, no, 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 no. This is definitely this. Why? Because we're King James only, and that's just what we like. That's about as far as their argument goes. Don't be so sure when you see a discrepancy that they're not both wrong, and a third option true. That God was big enough to record both names for the same place in two different manuscripts for you. That it's not actually a contradiction. It's a confirmation. Yeah. After all, don't we have Gospels that say things like one Gadarean demoniac? No, there were two. Yeah. And he said, well, they can't both be right. Of course they can. One Gospel is telling you about one of the two Gadarean demoniacs. Mm -hmm. The other one's telling you about both. You know. By the way, was there one, two, or were there 2,000? <laughs> well, it depends on whether we're talking about the man or the demons. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. Um, let's let's pick back up in uh, in Joshua. Somebody read four one and five. We we need five ten. I don't know. Oh, yes. I, yeah. On the evening of the fourteenth day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. I don't want to bog you down in chronology right now. I am going to do that probably next week. But they faced the Jordan on the tenth of Nisan, and they cross it. On the 14th of Nisan, they have Passover. And then the battle for Jericho starts. On the 10th of Nisan, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He was inspected for four days. On the 14th of Nisan, he was slaughtered along with the Passover lambs. They had a very interesting battle plan. A lot like Joshua, we're not even going to arm ourselves. I mean, our kingdom's not of this world. If it were of this world, we'd need to fight. But we don't need to fight. Do your best. I'm going to sit here and play my trumpet and watch your walls fall. Okay? Um, that's an incredible coincidence. There is a saying among rabbis, coincidence is not a kosher word. Okay? God doesn't do anything by coincidence. This was intended. So, in Joshua 4.1, the whole nation crosses over. And then in Joshua 5.10... They immediately do a Passover and the whole nation's right with God. Isn't that interesting? They cross over and as they cross over, the first thing they do is they're all right with God. That's a little bit like Luke twenty-two fifteen. Who's got that? 
And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus did a Passover that put everybody right for God. When he came out of the baptismal waters, what was he headed for? He's headed for the crucifixion. He spends three and a half years getting there, but he's been announcing it from the beginning. He is crossing that river that symbolizes for us the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He's doing it before he actually fights the battle. That is a symbol of the battle to come. But he fought both battles. It began his ministry, and it ended his ministry. In what way is Passover just like baptism? Baptism represents Passover. See, he enters into death, like the Jordan River, and he comes out of it alive. Do you see how that works? It might help you to know some things about the Jordan River. Let's do that. In Hebrew, this is hey yarden. It means the descender, or the one who descends. That's interesting, isn't it? Since our entire faith is based on somebody who not only descended, but also (coughs) ascended into heaven. The Jordan starts at Mount Hermon, the most northern place in Israel and the highest mountain in Israel. And it descends to the Salt Sea, which is the lowest place in Israel, and the deadest place in Israel. It's the former site of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God drove it into the earth. Think on that for just a minute. The Jordan River goes from the heights of Israel to the depths of Israel, from the mountaintop experience with God to those who are under the judgment of God, so much so that a sea of judgment is on top of their head. The Jordan River is an interesting thing. It's nearly 200 miles long. It's normally less than 100 feet wide. It's not an impressive river. But at flood stage, it's over a mile wide. That's some serious expansion, huh? The Jordan was the site of Israel's biggest failure in Numbers 14. But it's the site of their biggest success in Joshua 3. Is the cross a failure or a success? Well, yes. It's the success of Jesus, Joshua. But it's the failure of a whole nation to do what God's called them to do. You, you see the similarities? Okay. Maybe most importantly, the Jordan River begins and ends inside of Israel, just like salvation. So Chris, read Romans 1.16. And um, Justin, you read Romans 2.9. It's not just salvation that begins in in Israel. Judgment does too. Romans 1, 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. First for the Jew, Jew. then for the Gentile. Salvation begins with the Jew. Now Romans 2, 9. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Do you hear that? The Jordan River begins and ends in Israel. Salvation begins and ends in Israel. Judgment begins and ends in Israel. 
You could get the impression that the whole Bible is about a people group, a place, and a plan that God has. And that every lie that has ever been originated to combat that replaces the people or the place or alters the plan. Comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Okay? Um, Mormons replaced Israel. Jehovah's Witnesses replaced Israel. Muslims replaced Israel. Okay? Now, I'm not going to go into the mainline denominations, but you can figure it out. It's, it's really not that hard. The Bible is a story that begins and ends in Israel. You cannot make it about you. You can't. We can no more make it about Egypt than we can make it about America than we can make it about Swiss Germany. We, we cannot do it. It's not about us. The fact that we are included in it was kind of a mystery. But what happened in Joshua chapter 2? Just prior to crossing the Jordan. There was a plan to save Rahab so that when they cross the Jordan, she makes it into the lineage of the holy people. Is this not a beautiful book? Yes. If you didn't understand the engrafting of the Gentiles, but you had the first three chapters of Joshua, you could get it, couldn't you? If you didn't have Joshua, but you had the book of Ruth, you could get it. The direction of Israel's crossing the Jordan was from east to west, and the direction of Jesus' return is from east to west. Let's do this. Let's give you seven times in Israel's history that there was a census. That's pretty important. Y'all ready? Yes, sir. I'll hand them out as scriptures and then we can, uh, you can list them. How about that? That'll help you. So Susan, you take Exodus 38, 26. Steve Thomas, you take Numbers 1, verses 1 through 2. Uh, Larissa, you take Numbers 26, and I'll give you a verse in just a minute. Uh, Joyce, you take... Joshua 5.7, that's an important phrase there. Um, Sam, you take 1 Chronicles 21. Buddy, I, I have to give you verses. Uh, 1 Kings 5, and you also want to write 2 Chronicles 2. Matthew, you look at Ezra chapter 2. And Cass, just turn in your Bible to Matthew 25. <clears throat> so let's start in Exodus 38, 26. census are given in Exodus 38 and when those rules are given it's at Israel's inception and did you hear the phrase a half shekel of silver for you to cross over so there would be a divide in the camp the side that was not yet redeemed was referred to as death the side that was redeemed was referred to as life 
and to cross from death to life, you had to pay. And then, did you hear the specific phrase? You cross over. Jews are exceedingly good at counting. And uh, they knew establishing a physical system where you had to cross over something as you made payment singled out those who had not made payment yet. Right? It also separated those that had. Welcome to the idea of the congregation of the righteous. There's supposed to be a clear dividing line between those who are paid for by Jesus Christ and He owns your life and those that haven't. We've crossed over. Something's changed. A battle has begun for us and yet it's also already been won. Of course, it hasn't been won if you were simply baptized in water symbolically of death, but you do not maintain that until you're baptized in death and come out in life. You follow me? It begins and ends in the same spot. Okay? Let's take our next passage. So is Numbers? Numbers 1, verse 1 through 2. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, Take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. So what happens is they do this when they first come out and then they do it again in numbers in the second year. It allows them to determine whether they've grown. It allows them to determine those things and they were ordered by God. How about numbers 26? Read your chapter heading to me. The second census. How about that? That kind of settles it for us, huh? Mm -hmm. The second census is actually the third census but it's the second census at the border of Canaan. This is where they get to 38 years after they have left Egypt, and they count the people and decide they can't cross, that they can't do it. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Let's take our fourth one. Joshua 5, 7. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Joshua 5.7 is still in reference to Numbers 26. I wanted you to see a very specific point here. When they get come out of Egypt, they're counted. Everybody pays a half shekel. In the second year, they're counted again. Another half shekel is paid. This allows them to settle up issues with how many Levites there'll be. And that's too complicated to share with you. The third time that there's a census, they get to the land, they count the number of people, they decide they can't go in. Numbers 26 tells you how many people. Joshua 5, 7 says, when they get to the land the next time, these were raised up in the place of the others. In other words, one generation didn't do their job, and the next generation was raised up in their place. That's important because when you find out in the census, 1 Chronicles 21 is David, what, what you do when you count the number of people that are listed in the census, there's 1,870 less the second time they get there. So when they get to the land and they count the people, that number 
is then compared the next time they get to the land and count the people. And there's 1,870 less people, but they took their place. What does that ultimately mean? Anybody deduce this for me? They were better equipped the first time they got there, but they had no faith. They were less equipped the second time they got there, but they had faith. Which time did they go in? Does your life depend upon how you're equipped or not? Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? Okay, First Chronicles 21, what is your chapter title? David Numbers the Fighting Men. This is the census that David takes. How about First? Uh, and by the way, the, the scripture says Satan incited him here, and it also says the Lord incited him, uh, and that's another Bible difficulty that can be solved. How about First Kings five or Second Chronicles two? What does the title say? Preparations for building the temple is First uh, Kings five and Second Chronicles. Preparations for building the temple. When they built the temple, they counted the people because they needed to know what their tax base would be, and that's a census in the time of Solomon for census number five. <laughs> Ezra 2. Who's got that? Read the title. Um, or the verse. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of exiles. When they came out of Babylon, they had to count how many came out of Babylon and made the return. That is the sixth census in Israel's history. Brenton, how many short are we? I don't know. If there's seven, Brenton, if there's seven census, and we've gone through six of them, how many short are we? We're short one. And it has to be in Israel. Do you live in Israel? No, no. I don't live in Israel either. Cass, what is Matthew 25 about? Sheep and the goats. How about that? Could you read a little bit of it for me? When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him. Where will He return? Israel. And He gathers the nations to Israel and He counts them and separates them back into categories of those who are dead and those who are alive. The goats get death. The sheep get life. There will be seven censuses in Israel's history. We are through six of them. We're waiting on a seventh. Notice that when they came out of Egypt, they counted them. But they counted them again in the next year. And they counted them again when they got to the Jordan the first time and counted them again when they got to the Jordan the second time. And they counted them, weren't supposed to, in David's time for no particular reason. Then in Solomon's time, they count them again before building the temple. What if the Lord is taking a census of your life to see whether you're still crossing the Jordan? See, we would like to make this a singular event. I was counted in the census, it's done. But in reality, there's a new census taken with every step of obedience that the Lord asks of you. Uh, what about the Revelation 144,000? It's an interesting question. What you're going to find is that there's a multitude before His throne from every nation, every tribe, tongue, and nation before His throne. And what He is seeing at the beginning of the chapter 
is how many Israelites there are, but not everyone. And so those number of Israelites is to encourage John, your people have made it into this scenario. Okay? But that is um, uh, at the throne of God uh, after the tribulation. So I'm speaking from now to the Messianic age. Okay? Uh, now, let's talk about crossing over. Do you want to be found right in the census? Yes. yes. Crossing over begins back in Joshua 3 1. Hey, Frank, before we do that, you read Joshua 5, 21 through 24. Let's get our perspectives back here. I'm sorry, John 5, 21 through 24, and then we're going to go to Joshua 3, 1. John 5, 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. He has what? Crossed over. How do you cross over from death to life? A price has got to be paid. When Jesus came up out of those baptismal waters, the Spirit of God was remaining upon him. I erased the list. He was uh, Spirit remaining. He was called the Son of God. He was called the Lamb of God. Come to do what? Take away the sin of the world. Take away the sin of the world. The price that would be paid for you was stated at the Jordan. When he came out of the water, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He knew that he was going to have to go through a Passover. And he knew that his blood was your price to pass over. How serious does that make your obedience? Anybody who trusts him has crossed over from death to life. When somebody gets saved, how do we symbolize it? You go into the baptismal waters. Have you known people that were baptized but then we're not obedient. You'll have to figure out whether or not they'll make it in the census of the sheep and the goats. Mm. But I'm telling you that Jesus wasn't just crossing over from water to dry land. He submerged himself into death and came out the other side alive. And that's what's required of every Christian. The question is not, did you make a statement of faith, but will you rise in the resurrection of the dead? Mm-hmm. That's the question. All right, are you in uh, Joshua 3.1? Yep. Yes. Yes. Early in the morning. We have not forgotten, by the way, about Bethabara. We're coming back to Bethabara. But early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. Who told them where to camp? I think that God had this spot planned for a reason. After three days, say three days. Three days. 
The officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Is it enough to know where the presence of God is? No, you have to move out and follow it. Verse 4. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. If your Christian walk is not a way that you have never been before, then you cannot be following the presence of God. Even Jesus, you know what he had never done before he was baptized? Been led by the Spirit straight into the desert to be tempted by the devil personally. But the moment he crosses over, the Spirit leads him into contention with the enemy. You know one sure sign that people are not actually born again? They're not contending with the enemy because they're no threat to him. You know a sure sign that you're born again? When you're attacked on every side. Come on, you have to move out from your position and follow him. Come on, say move out. Move out. And follow. And follow. The church stakes out its position and sits on its salvation. We're supposed to move out from our position and follow. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Is it possible to cross the Jordan if you do not consecrate yourself? No. no. See, this is, this is an interesting uh, dilemma. I was baptized many times before I was saved. Because I had never consecrated myself. Not in any way. Nothing was different. Nothing was different about my life. I went into the water, a dry center, came out of the water, a wet center. But when Matthew Pirro baptized me, everything about my life had changed. So much so that my parents threw me out of the house. So much so that I got arrested for witnessing that weekend. I mean, there was nothing about my life that was the same. I was in contention with the enemy at every turn. I was learning and being trained. It, isn't that worth considering? How different were the life of the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan? You're going to find out the manna stopped falling from heaven because they were expected to fight for their food. You're going to find out every day is a new battle, but they won when they trusted the Lord. You're going to find out everything changed when they crossed the Jordan. Uh, somebody else read 6 through 7. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Do you know what exalts Jesus, what exalts Joshua in this? When you follow an order, the order goes like this. The ark, which is the Lord's presence, is in the front. There is a distance between the people and the ark that is almost a mile. That distance is about four-fifths of a mile. This ensures that they're actually following and that they're not trying to push, manipulate, or prompt. The people who are in between this distance, right here, are the priests. Something that exalts Jesus 
is when you actually are following priests that are actually following the Lord, and there is no hint of manipulation, there is no hint of steering, there is only discerning direction and obeying that direction. Now, think on that for just a second. How high is Jesus lifted when man is not steering and there are victories? Very high. It's not that he desires to be far from the people. It's that he doesn't want you steering the ark. Does that make sense? Isn't about half of our problems, we're not sure whether we did that because we wanted to or because the Lord led us to. When you have to ask questions like, was that the devil or the Lord? What does that tell you? You don't have enough perspective to actually see it. One thing about that distance is you have to concentrate on what's that. Yes. And have you ever followed somebody through a city and you you don't know the city well? How closely do you watch? See, when you've never been that way before, you are dependent. Where else would I go? You have the very words of life and death. You need them. And he wants that. Okay. You know what else you have to do? You actually have to walk. You, you, you can't just grab onto the priest's shoulder. Okay. I'm not talking about a separation between clergy and laity as in worth. I'm talking about following men who are actually following the Lord but doing it in a way that you are still independent and having to actually work, not just ride on their coattails. <laughs> okay, let's read 9 through 13. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Parasites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Real quick, those are seven nations that are being driven out. And seven's important. There's a pattern that I'm not going to teach tonight, but it occurs in Daniel, it occurs in Revelation, and it occurs here. We start with ten kings. Then, they're reduced to seven. And those seven are defeated by Joshua. That, uh, the first three, being uh, Og of Bashar, and Sihon and the Amalekites. Those three have already been defeated. These seven remain. You pay attention to ten horns versus seven throughout the Bible, you're going to see that same pattern everywhere. But I don't think we should get into it here. Okay, keep going, Matt. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in the heat. Anybody remember where they were cut off? Yeah, look, at Adam. You think that's a mistake? God enters the water. It's the same word in Hebrew, by the way, as the man Adam. God enters the water, and the twelve men enter the water ahead of the nation. They all get to see that. God enters the perilous waters of judgment and they're cut off. The death that came on mankind from Adam was stopped by God himself entering. And then there were 12 men following closely behind him that are testifying to that for everyone else. Do you know when you look at Adam on the map, 
map, put it back on the screen for me. When you look at Adam on the map, it's north of their position. You know what is south of their position? Sodom and Gomorrah. Because that's where the line of Adam leads. The line of Adam leads to sin and death. But God stepped in and he cut it off personally. And then 12 men followed him. Literally to their deaths, by the way. And also to their lives. Right? Stepped in. Tell me that's not beautiful. Adam is just north of their position. Which makes sense to why the waters were cut off. Notice that they step in with their feet getting wet, but they're touching dry ground. That's that's an incredible thing. They have to put their feet in the water's edge before it splits. But then it splits, and the comment is made they crossed on completely dry ground. God may let you get wet, but you're going to stand on the dry truth of His Word. I mean, it's whatever you suffer, you suffer for a much greater good. I can promise you that. You can kill that, Matthew. Yeah, there are some good things about to happen in this room. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited about trying not to cut uh, ahead. Let's read 13 through 4.3. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off. As soon as they do what? They have to set foot in it. You know, Christians are said to sleep and not die. That's, uh, That's how Paul said, we won't all sleep. That's a little bit like getting your foot wet and then saying you're on dry ground. We taste of death, but we don't submit to death. It's temporary for us. Their foot got wet in the judgment water, but by the time they reached the bottom, it had split and it was dry and they stood not wet. You see the shadow on type there? You're not going to drown in death. It is not going to swallow you up. You're going to swallow it up. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to face it. It doesn't mean that you don't have to feel it. And it might be why Jesus wept when he saw Lazarus. Yeah? Keep going. Its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priest who carried the ark reached the Jordan, and their feet touched the water's edge. The water from upstream stopped flowing. You remember the first time you were ever invited to this church? <laughs> How many of you had to try more than once to even make a service? I mean, it's not uncommon for people's cars to break down, for them to get called late to work, for anything in the world to get between them and the presence of God. I see a lot more heads nodding yes than there were hands raised. Uh, You may not have known what I was asking. It turns out that when God is calling you to cross, when he's telling you, this is time, you're going to have to cross over and take your stand, hell causes those waters to get deeper and wider and deeper and wider so that you'll be intimidated like you were looking at giants. Why do you think Joshua crossed it at the widest possible time? Sets an example for you. Do you know at the widest possible time, 
what this passage actually says it is, though? Harvest. The most difficult harvest you'll ever get will come right after the most difficult seasons that you've ever been through. Can I tell you what the Stevens families do for? Harvest. We're going to get it. If you are going through difficulty, consider what the devil is trying to keep you from getting to. And if you give up now, you will never know how close you were to obtaining it. It got pretty difficult in three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. All deserved it. We talk about Peter, but the truth is, none of them were anywhere to be found. They're not out on the street preaching during those three days. They're overcome with the wetness of their feet, but they're about to hit the dry ground. Go ahead and finish, Matthew. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called... Adam. Hey, Matt, it's a whole heap of what? <laughs> Sometimes the devil just throws a lot at you, right? Don't descend with the Jordan. Split it. Cross it. Don't 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 go down to the Dead Sea with it. Keep going. It's a heap of harvest. Yeah. Mm. It's a whole heap of harvest. And a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, the salt sea was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. So let's get this uh let's get this straight, just to make sure that I understand, because there's a whole nother passage we're going to. Whole nother chapter we're going to. The spot where John the Baptist was baptizing is called Bethabara. It is the place that Joshua crossed the river. We see an extraordinarily uh, intricate number of intersecting details between Joshua and Jesus. We listed seven of them, but you, you can do far more than that if you look. All that have to do with the relationship of that desert to the water to the war on the other side. You all following me so far? As I thought about this, I said, you know, when else in history did an anointed leader have nothing but a ram's horn have to face an oppressor? Let's go to Judges 7. All right, who, who is dying to read? Uh-huh. Justin Linton, you pick up in verse 13. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. Mm-hmm. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friends responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and his interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed the trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. 
Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that <coughs> sorry, broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Manola, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, And all Manasseh were called out, and, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. As far as where? Beth Barah. <laughs> so in verse 15, Gideon is acting in response to a revelation. You know how this chapter goes. He's been hiding in a wine press in the chapter before. Uh, he's called a, uh, a, a mighty man of God, a mighty warrior. He comes in response to that revelation. In verse 17, read verse 17. I'm, I'll just have you read them and we'll call them out. Hit 17. Somebody else. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. Shut it down. Victory is going to depend on doing what the mighty man of God with a revelation does. Do exactly as I do. Jesus said, my father loves me because I do what he tells me to do. Okay. How, how about this one? Uh, Bim, read 19 through 20. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just after they had changed the guards. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets that were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So they have a clay jar in their left hand. A clay jar, a pot. And inside that, they have the torch of God. And victory begins... When the torch of God is released because the clay jar is broken. You feeling me now? Jar of clay with treasure hidden inside? And then they don't have a sword in their hand. What do they have in their right hand? They blow the very authority of the Lamb, the Word of God. They have weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. They have the Spirit of God and the Word of God, which is all they need. And like Jericho, it's their only battle plan. That's not a good battle plan. Except it is. Wonder where Gideon got the idea he could do this. How about uh, victory began by breaking the clay that let the fire out and the blowing of the trumpet that is the word. Read verse 21, Ben. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. 
Now, we learned in Joshua that you've got to move out from your position. But in a time of war, do you know what else you have to do? You have to hold your position. We're told all of the time, oh man, I, well, I got saved on such and such day. Well, I hope you did. Are you standing in the salvation that you say you have? Or has war moved you off your position? Wow. Because they're told they got to stand. You hold your position. All hell's trying to get them to move, but they're going to stand. They don't have a sword. They have no natural armaments. They have the unchained fire of God and as much breath as they can blow in a trumpet. How about verse 22? When the 300 trumpets when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord calls the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with oh, the sword. Oh, come on. You mean God did the actual fighting when the men did the moving they were supposed to do? How did it get one at Joshua at, with Joshua at Jericho? God did it. Okay. In verse 24 is our point. So read it one more time. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barak. Where did the battle end? At the house, Beth, of the crossing, Barak. The battle begins and ends with a crossing over. Here's your etymological research. Beth Barah, Hebrew, Strong's number 1012, House of the Ford. That is the absolute, direct, exact, same word as Bethabara, Strong's number 962 in Greek, which also means House of the Ford. I want to tell you, that to begin your battle, you have to cross over. To win your battle, you have to cross over. The problem is the starting line and the finish line are not the same, but they're achieved in the same way. So we've mistaken them for the same thing. When Joshua crossed over the Jordan, it began his battle. When Gideon reaches the place of crossing, he's already won his battle. Which is it? Did I win there? Or did I finish there? Did I start there or did I finish there? The answer is yes. The very same things that you do to get saved are the same things that you do to stay saved. The same thing that brought you victory when you had the faith to leave a desert and face a walled city with nothing is the same thing that brings you victory when you should have 22,000 men. But in the seventh book, the seventh chapter, and the seventh verse... God says, take only those 300 down there. Because I don't want anybody to think you did this by your own strength. (laughs) All of our walk, all of it, is about being in an indefensible position where you are weak and the enemy is strong. And you are leaning on the Lord who saves you. Can I tell you, a few of us have been a little beat up lately. Okay? We're, we're, We're not powers of strength. We are weak, broken people who are leaning on the Lord and you see His strength. So what happens then is you have to smash your clay jar with the torch inside because that's the beginning of the victory. You've got to be willing to be a little broken 
You have to be willing to go into death with your feet wet, believing you're going to land on dry ground. You have to come out the other side of that and bring a great big rock with you. Kind of killed Goliath. As a rock of testimony that says, when I'm in trouble, I stand on this and it reminds me of what he does. I could preach about Joshua 3 forever. But you know what I needed to remember this week? It's always at flood stage before the harvest. Cross it. You just keep going. If I gotta swim, I'm gonna swim. But I don't have to swim. God will cause us to walk on dry ground. We may cover chapter 3 again next week. I don't know. May do chapter 4. I just know that Beth Bara is an intersection in the scripture that I've never seen before and we need to to mine. We need to I couldn't give you 20 lists of 7 tonight because I found it today and it took me all day to find it. But I can tell you there is something there that that is is beautiful. Joshua is leading people out of the desert and into the promised land. The first picture of Jesus' ministry is leaving the promised land and entering the desert to do warfare for you. See, he comes and gets us. You remember the first five books of the Bible? In the beginning, Bereshit. In the beginning, these are the names, Shemot. Vayikra, he called in the desert, Bemidbar, and Deuteronomy Devarim gave his word. You want to know what Jesus is like? In the desert where we were losing, he went. The desert which is in our rear view mirror, we're going towards the promised land, we're fighting to get there. Jesus is willing to go the wrong way on the right road to get somebody who's not quite there yet. Okay. It's, uh, it's more beautiful than I have words for tonight. And uh, I'm going to do my best to hold it together. If you dig into these things, you're going to find even more beautiful things. If you glean nothing from the scripture, higher critics are wrong. When they look at manuscripts and all they can see are error, they're missing beauty. There is always an explanation. You just have to pray and look. It's just as assaulting to me as it is you. When I see something like this, I'm like, what? What could this be? And I don't have it in me to pretend like I just didn't see it. It's like a metaphor for life, though. You're going to keep coming right up to the Jordan and having to cross it again and again and again. You just remember that even if you can feel water on your feet, by the time you hit the ground, it will be dry. He does this. The battle was began there, and in Gideon's day, it ended there. That's what our king does. Amen? Amen. Y'all stand to your feet. We'll pray with you. Um, yeah, we'll do it like that. Miss Joy, go put your hands on Jennifer. We are still fighting with uh, an increased bleeding and uh, some problems there. We're now one week exactly 
and um, we're still fighting through all of that. So we want to see healing there, and also we don't want a battle to become the battle, right? We're able to fight on many fronts, and we're going to. Natalie, will you pray for us? Yeah.